This is the Clydecast. I'm Allison Mayfly here with my co-host Veronica Friend. Welcome to Kaleidocast. Oh my pod! Which, as we're all aware... All 150 subscribers, you mean. 150? Wow, that's a big improvement. I wonder how that happened. It was me. And that TikTok I posted, Pod loves you. What are you doing? Trying out new names for the podcast. As all 150, no, 152 of us are aware, Kaleidocast is a literary salon wherein we explore the connections between a pair of stories we've chosen and weave them into the culture at large. This episode, we have No Version Like Home, written by Liam Burke, and Whole Time Variations by John Chu. Hecking heck. Heck? We're only allowed a limited number of swears per episode. And why the music? It's your theme. Feel that rhythm? Since your injury, you walk like a little duck when you tripped during that field piece we recorded the other day. It's your fault I sprained it. I was about to introduce the segment. Yes, chef. Don't strain yourself. While you recoup and rejuve, it's an all-Veronica production. Relax. Let me ease your burdens. Yes, listeners, this season it's more me, more V. Improvisation, real-time streaming, field clips, and mysteries. Yesterday afternoon, the Kaleidocast team visited Sheepshead Bay and one of the last remaining pork stores. Business name withheld under fear of litigation. Here's what went down. We're standing here on Avenue U in front of pork store for reasons which Veronica tells me will be obvious. Fun fact, it's only in certain regions of the East Coast that butcher shops are called pork stores as a way for Italian-American butchers to distinguish themselves from kosher butchers. You're not getting into the spirit of it. Be less Allison, more fun, spontaneous. Take two. We're walking, we're walking into the pork. Uh, Now we're inside. Uh, It's a little busier than I thought it would be for three o'clock in the afternoon. Nice selection of sausage and meats. Spontaneous, more spontaneous. You can do it, Allie. Now, Veronica is hiding behind me. Sir, would you like to be interviewed for an up and coming literary podcast? Get that mic out of my face, you. Now, Veronica, what the are you doing here? New development, store owner appears to know Veronica and hate her. There's only love here, bro. I'm introducing you to my friend with the podcast. Allison Mayfly, who does not owe you any money and will Venmo you a down payment in return for the thing. The thing I wanted you to give me? Down payment? I don't even have Venmo. If you nerds don't have my money, both of you f*** the f*** out of town. Language! We're only allowed a few swears. Wait, we're investigating something very important. Yoink! Got the thing! Run, Allison! Hacking heck! I'm not a part of whatever this is. Let me out. My knee! Why are you waddling like a duck? Pod damn it, that was pure fire. What did you steal? A can? What does this have to do with Liam Burke and no version like home? All good things to those who want listener retention. Keep an audience in suspense. No Version Like Home, by Liam Burke, narrated by Tatiana Gray. The homemade bomb was a heavy weight in my hand. 
I sprayed sticky foam on the side of the newly constructed building. I attached the timer, cobbled from alarm clocks and spite, doing my best to ignore the chatter from my fellow activists sharing our psychic link. This is our first big blow to the conglomerate, Bezel chirped in our minds. Her bottomless cheer, carried along with her thoughts, contrasted with images of gray-coated conglomerate thugs with their inverted yellow pyramid logos. I eyeballed the distance from the corner, not easy at night, and placed the bomb. It stuck with a plop. I adjusted it a few times before the adhesive dried. After this, their investors will see it as too risky, Yaida added, his smooth, calming certainty giving me respite from the deluge of excitement. The property value will plummet, and we can buy back our home. I could see him, and the others in my mind, placing their bombs next to the giant conglomerate logos on the empty ten-story monstrosity. The image made my skin crawl, bringing back childhood memories of our fishing village, being demolished by crews wearing the symbol, of them filling in the streams and hills, flattening the land for their progress. We couldn't be Brooklings without brooks. I missed fishing and the harbor. I would have given anything to go back. I didn't bother masking my thoughts, and the others felt it. Don't worry, we'll get it back. Fakor, our team leader, sent her steady, sure mental patterns. I know, I said. I set the timer and walked to the nearby construction site. It's just too bad the building's empty. Zephold Cools, you take that back! Bezel cried out in mental shock. Violence is their way, sent Yaida. It's okay. We know you feel things deeply. Understanding laced Fakor's thoughts. A lot of good it does me, I muttered out loud, keeping it from the others with effort. I ran a hand through my pink, gently waving head fronds, trying to calm myself by calming them. All set on my end. I shot out my thought with more vitriol than intended. It sliced through the continuing chatter, and our link silenced briefly. Ready, Bezel sent, thought numb and saddened at my ire. Ready, Yaida answered. Ready, Fakor confirmed. Everyone get clear. Detonation in three minutes. Anticipation rushed through our joined minds as we all dashed madly in the dark to safe distances. The building stood in the construction floodlights as we all held our breath. There was a sizzling pop to my left and a strong smell of oranges. I turned my flashlight on briefly and saw a woman. She was looking through binoculars. Two minutes, I made it, she said, tapping an oversized green glowing watch on her wrist. You're going to want to see this. Who the hell? I spluttered, staggering backwards and narrowly missing a metal pipe. I sent what I was seeing to the others. Silver, incredibly numerous and thin head fronds pulled back, a mismatched rainbow-colored clothes, long coat, wide-brimmed hat, and mischief in the smile on her aged face. On her wrist was that oversized watch with a large, milky green dial on it with uncountably numerous indices shifting and warping. No time. I'm Agatha. I'm here to fight the conglomerate. You messed up your bomb. You and your friends need to move now. Zuphold, what happened? The others crowded in my mind. I could tell they were rushing to my location. I snatched the binoculars and looked. 
I swore across the link as I saw she was right. My bomb was too close to a gas line. We'd never fix it in time. Back off! I screamed on the link, slamming the image I'd seen along with it. The others felt my fear and let it drive them, fleeing back into the dark. I joined them, sprinting blindly for the remaining thirty seconds. The building went up in fire. An explosion likely seen for miles. The heat and shock of the detonation threw me forward, debris flying overhead. Ahead of me, in the light of the fire, I saw Agatha step slightly to the side as an I-beam shot past her. Her coat fluttered and she held her hat down with one hand as she watched the destruction calmly. She saw me staring at her and smiled sadly. I'm sorry, you and your friends are going to have to beat it before the police get here or you're fucked. I heard sirens screeching out long warbling cries like an angry flock of birds disturbed from slumber. We have to get to the safe house, Fakor instructed. Where's the car? Oh my god, where's the car? Bezel wailed. I got to my feet. Agatha searched her pockets, pulled another wrist device out, and adjusted her own. The fire stained everything in reds and oranges, making the metal skeleton around me dance. I coughed as soot and dust billowed. Agatha tutted and waved her hand in front of her face. I brushed myself off and concentrated. I let the images of where the others were flow into my mind, connecting to the deep bond we'd formed. The concern I felt must have shown on my face. Agatha rubbed my shoulder sympathetically. If they wait for you, you're all as good as done. Come with me, I'll get you safe. My friends will help yours. The police sirens were getting louder as they closed in. The legal repercussions would be nothing compared to what the conglomerate would do. Agatha seemed nuts, but she had saved our lives. I reached out on the link. I don't know for sure who this is, but she helped warn us about the explosion and she's giving me an out. We'll meet later. No, we stay together. It's what we do. It's who we are, Fakor argued. I'll find you. Go, I insisted, fighting back tears. Okay, lady. Another oversized watch with numerous shifting indices was slapped onto my wrist. Behind the madwoman, I saw a conglomerate overseer in a long gray coat step out of the dust cloud. His logo glowed evilly. My eyes went wide, and Agatha followed my gaze. Stop, Agatha! They're never going to help you! He yelled as she turned back and smiled at me. I had enough time to hear her tell me to hang on to my butt before she turned our wrist dials and I blinked out of my existence and into another. The construction was gone. The flaming rubble, the parking lot, the sirens, all whisked away, along with the familiar stars in the sky, and most devastatingly, my psychic link to my friends. I cried out in shock and mental severing, Suddenly I was far too heavy to stand and I fell hard. The ground looked, felt, and smelled like cinnamon. The sandy particles hopped slightly at my impact before they too were pulled down. As I struggled to breathe and flailed about wildly for a mind, any mind, I saw the sky was also crimson and swirling. The sun was massive and ruby-colored, glaring down from what seemed like mere feet away. All thoughts of pursuit were squeezed out of me by the pressure and the isolation. We hadn't moved more than a foot. Home had to be near. But this wasn't it. This couldn't be it. Along with the panic, disappointment gnawed in the back of my isolated mind. Crushed from above and below, 
I saw Agatha standing, twisting her device's dial and softly singing a song. I caught the words. Step on through to the other side. She seemed unaffected by any of the weight. I blinked sluggishly and tried to sit up. By the time I had, she was done adjusting and nodded, satisfied. That's enough time waiting, I think. Preston will believe himself clever following us here, but I've been doing this since he was in diapers, don't you worry. Ooh, I croaked out of a dry mouth. The particles had sucked me clean of moisture, and what they hadn't gotten the sun was stealing. In all directions, the world had been pushed and pulled flat. Oh, that's the overseer chasing us. He's been after me for years. I should have told you. Part of the plan is... We're the distraction. Hope you don't mind. More importantly, you can't sense your friends, can you? She reached down and clasped my hand. As she did, I felt the weight slip away. I breathed easier and was able to get to my feet, though I was still thirsty and scared. No, I choked out. It's just me. Fascinating, Agatha said. I am truly sorry about that. I know what it's like to be on your own. And I'm sorry for taking you here first. This version is the worst. The overseer appeared in a sizzling pop. Agatha turned our dials again as the universe lurched. Red saturation and gray-yellow smears bleeding into blue and green. Agatha grunted wordlessly in annoyance. The colors shifted again from greens and blues to grays and blacks, striped with a gross orange. Off balance, I clung to Agatha as I found myself in what was almost a familiar environment. Tall structures loomed, with the consistency of wasps' nests. The ground was more of the same material. I could hear cars outside of the alley, and orange streetlights seeped in. We were in a city, somehow, even though there wasn't one for hundreds of miles. My mind remained alone, my thoughts echoing hollowly. I couldn't connect to Agatha. That sense of hovering on the threshold of where I belonged came back, stronger this time. It was all the more disorienting for the obvious truth. This couldn't be home. My home was gone. In a haze of longing, I staggered out of the alley. I was looking for someone, anyone to connect to or something I could recognize. I'd heard voices on the street and instinctively headed towards them. Behind me, Agatha tapped her wrist, timing a beat. No, wait, she cried out, too late. I saw an orange vehicle in the crush of traffic with an illegible sign on top. A cab? Wherever we were, I could get back to my friends. The cross street was Avenue X and East 22nd. It meant nothing to me, but it was a start. I waved the cab down. The car screeched to a halt as voices screamed and babbled all around me. Confused, I looked around and realized my mistake. There were no people on the street, or driving the cars. None whatsoever. There were giant grasshoppers screaming at me, whole crowds of them, mandibles open wide, wings flaring. The swarm fled in all directions, flying into alleys or into the night sky. A few with strollers covered their larvas' undeveloped eyes. Others protected their grasshopper wives with their long, segmented arms. One waved its top legs at its face before it fell over and twitched. I stumbled back into the chitinous alley, my heart pounding. 
The buildings to either side were a shop front named G&S Stems and Flowers and a butcher shop full of giant grubs on ice. Zappold, sorry, you really don't want to go out there. Agatha's voice pulled me around. Where are we? No time. Focus on me. Can you sense your friends? She asked, adjusting her wrist device. I couldn't, of course. Her question lanced a reminder of pain in my heart, and I suddenly hated her and how she'd taken me here, stupid watch included. It clicked in my mind. The devices had brought us. Every time she turned them, things shifted. She'd gone clockwise. No, I said, but I will. I turned my device counterclockwise, hard. Oh, shit! Agatha's voice echoed as the world blurred again, and I found myself in the exact same spot, a universe away. The buildings were brick and cement, broken concrete sidewalks under my feet. Most were in pieces, as if a massive child had walked through and casually dragged their fingers along the tops, knocking them off and exposing their insides to the elements. Those elements had not been kind. Detritus was everywhere, mixed with the rubble, but everything was surprisingly clean where it wasn't blackened from fire. Mist shrouded me, cooling the air, smudging the edges of visibility. It smelled like water, and my body drank the moisture in after the hot red dryness and the panic of the giant bugs. My wilted head fronds slowly thickened and gently rustled as they hydrated. It was quiet, the mist serving to blur the edges of even my solitary noises. Agatha was standing in front of me, pale and shocked. She recovered, shaking her head ruefully. Of all the versions you could have randomly brought us to. Oh, the home I destroyed. I could hear my pulse pounding in the stillness. It was nice to hear anything in my head other than just my thoughts, but in the quiet I could fully experience just how alone I was. That nagging sensation of almost being in the right place was overwhelming. The disappointment with it equal. I had to have answers or I was going to break. Are you an alien? I blurted out. Agatha blinked and laughed before answering. No, I am very much human. Then why can't I connect to you? Where are we? What's going on? What planet are you from? Agatha interrupted, befuddling me. Earth? Mm-hmm. Me too. So, no, not an alien. However, I'm from a very different version than you. There's an infinite number of versions out there. Literally every possibility exists. In mine, humans were bipedal hairless monkeys who had no telepathy. We had six-inch bagels, though, which I think is a fair trade. In the dimension before this, humans were from bugs. And in yours, what does your science say you came from? Oh, some kind of jellyfish that was one organism in many? I rubbed my eyes and dredged up what little mundane education I'd gotten before the conglomerate. Fascinating, Agatha mused as she watched me. Now we have to keep moving. We want to be followed, but we don't want it to be easy. She began to lead me into the mist, and, essentially helpless, I went with her. She was all I had, and if I ever wanted a chance of getting back, I'd have to go with her. I'd never been alone with myself, in my own head, like this, and I wasn't sure I liked the things it was letting me work out. We've got a minute before he gets here, so ask and I'll answer, Agatha said. I took a steadying breath. Other than your name, who the heck are you? 
I'm an activist like you. Me and a few dozen others scattered across the multiverse, shaking trunks and helping fruit grow, cracking concrete and giving the finger to the conglomerate. We walked down a street that a rusted sign declared to be Avenue X and passed an open area that might have once been a park. Chunks of blue paint clung to a twisted jungle gym just within sight, steel slides rusted and full of holes. See, now that's that's crazy. You fight the conglomerate? They're just a, a corporation that buys up land and builds offices. They're assholes and they destroyed a lot, but across the galaxy? Agatha shook her head. Versions. And yeah, they're raging dickbags. They're not just building offices. They're crushing the multiverse under their heel to make it safe. And you fight them all across it? How? A Chinese food place named New Star on our left made me think of the giant red sun I'd faced not minutes before. The restaurant was mostly intact somehow. Even here, wherever we were, Chinese restaurants stayed open no matter what. Agatha nodded and smiled. Every universe is a slight variation on the first one that existed when the Big Bang went off. Time differences, species, hell, even physics sometimes. This thing here? She flashed the wrist device with its circular, green, glowing face, divided by millions of hair-thin lines. Let's me go to any of them. Or coexist with one or two of my own variants. Let's me get or know anything I need within limits. We call it a hopper. I synced ours, so for now, we go where either of us goes. Huh, I said. So you can show up whenever and wherever and with whatever you need? Yup, like binoculars or extra strength for high gravity or great whiskey. And now you stay one step ahead of the conglomerate, fighting the same fight I am? Tell me you're better at it than me. I really messed up. And now I'm further from home than ever. Each place feels closer and farther all at once. It's maddening, especially since I still can't sense anyone. I deeply wish you could. It's a terrible thing to be without community, Agatha said. The pain in her eyes, the set of her jaw. I believed her. I couldn't hate her anymore. We turned left, and shortly, Agatha stopped in front of a two-story building that had been broken into a story and a half. It was mostly brick, with a pair of steps leading to two different doors on two different porches. She had a faraway, wistful look. I stood there, on a corpse of a street, trying to figure out why this wasteland wanted me to think I was home. If we're gonna face him, it might as well be here, Agatha said. My old home. I hope you make the right choice, Zuppold. It's not always easy. You have to make a lot of messes before you can figure out how they get made, and how to keep them from happening. If anyone knows that, it's you, Agatha, a familiar male voice said from out of the mist. I spun as a glowing yellow logo burned through the clouds of vapor until the conglomerate overseer from my world was visible once more. He was holding what looked to be a prop gun from an alien flick, all chrome and curved edges. Took you long enough, Preston, Agatha chuckled, putting her hands in the air casually and gesturing me to follow suit. Yes. Well, when I saw you'd come here, I thought it had to have been a mistake. I had to double-check the readings. 
Preston the overseer answered. He turned to me and adrenaline thudded into my body. So, she's given you the speech, is she? Has she gotten to my favorite part? I shrugged as my apparent partner in crime snorted. My favorite part, Preston said as he slowly approached, boots crunching in the wreckage littering the street, is that she used to be one of us. They all were. Then they lost their nerve, grabbed as many dimensional shift regulators as they could, and decided they'd wage their little war. You're standing in the result of one of their amazing jobs. Agatha closed her eyes and visibly shook. That's low, Preston, even for you. He stopped and shook his head. What's low is how you could have saved your own dimension, but let your hubris get the better of you. Her home is gone, Zuppold, he explained, turning to me, the gun still trained on Agatha. Ruined by avoidable nuclear war. But yours isn't. Don't make the same mistake. You and yours already destroyed my home, I spat at him. Preston looked disappointed. There are infinite universes out there. You can have it back. You and your friends can live in the same place, the same way. Just make the right choice. Come with me, not her. Come with you? I asked. What do you mean? Preston blinked and chuckled. You didn't tell him. He looked at Agatha. We've been busy playing Dodge the Fascist, she shrugged. Tell me what? I asked. Agatha and I aren't just interested in you and yours, because we're invested in all versions. You specifically have massive potential. Your psychic connection. That's why you keep asking me that, I said to Agatha. But I'm cut off from everyone. Preston nodded and waved his gun dismissively. Yes, right now, I suppose. You're not all on the same channel, but if you were... We could coordinate operations across dozens, maybe even hundreds of versions. You can convince your species to do the right thing. We can win this annoying dispute and get on with fixing everything. Or, Agatha interrupted, you could help prevent the calcification of existence? Yes, Preston said, or you could help doom us all. Though more likely you'll just get disintegrated when I shoot you. But why do that? When you can go back home, Zuppold. I'm ashamed to admit, I thought about it. I've been fighting the conglomerate for so long and had never considered working with them. Not only that, but be the most effective weapon they had. I could have my family's boat back. We could be Brooklings again. All we had to do was abandon why we were fighting at all. You can take me back to my actual home and we can live where we actually lived. Well, for all intents and purposes, sure. Just put aside your emotions. Think logically, Preston said, a corporate smile plastered on his face. That's what sealed it for me. All these places saying to me, but out of tune. I couldn't ignore that feeling. I could never go back home. I'd been fooling myself, carried along by false hope of returning. I smiled, 
in spite of the hurt of it, because I was freer than ever. I couldn't go home, but I could stop other homes from being lost. I nodded to Preston. Okay, I'll go. To fix this. Agatha gasped, and Preston continued to smile without his eyes. Perfect. You're doing the right thing, like you always do. But first, I said, and winked at Agatha. I'll get a little messy. I turned my hopper's dial randomly. The beam Preston shot at us passed through vacant space. The look on his ugly, generic face was priceless as it blurred into everything else and dribbled into background slurry. We arrived in a version where everything was made of amethyst, even the people. I turned the dial, and we passed to a world with reversed gravity and fell upwards. I turned again and brought us through fire, then water, and then nothing at all. Over and over we hopped, Agatha cackling the whole time, leaving surprises for Preston as we went. Bombs, black holes, a very angry ferret. Finally, we stopped on a plane of black glass. Agatha assuring we'd left the overseer far behind. I stood there, panting staring in awe at the hopper. No wonder the conglomerate was hunting us. With it, I could do anything, anywhere, with anyone. It can't bring back the past, Agatha said. I looked up from my reverie at her silhouette against the backdrop of ink and starry pinpricks. I thought you weren't psychic. Agatha shook her head, her face lit green from her hopper as she held it up. I'm not. I've been fighting Preston for recruits for a long time now. They all hope it. It looks like you don't. Why? That gut sensation I keep getting of almost being home. The place might look the same, but it's not. You can't undo what's done, and you can't go back to the past you leave behind. No technology can do that. But it's okay. I'll learn to live with it. Agatha nodded. Calculations whirled in her eyes in sync with the spinning galaxies in the purple sky. That's why it always had to be you. You're the only one of your kind in all the versions I've seen with the chance to get it. In here. She tapped her chest. Everyone else, they just played the stats. They could never convince your people to help. At least none of them so far have. Because if I feel it, so do they. If I don't, they won't buy it. Huh, here I thought strong emotion was a liability, I said. It's anything but, Agatha said, beaming. Preston seemed pretty desperate to stop us, I said. You caught that? <laughs> now why? We're winning. The multiverse is weirder than ever. Come on, I'll show you. A few hops later, we stood on a waterfront. Steel guardrails separated us from a bay that was at once familiar and totally strange. Concrete and asphalt stretched alongside, and everywhere buildings crowded in to see the newcomers. It smelled like fish, and the stink conjured memories I thought I'd given up on. And there were boats. I ached to get on one, but I was sure I'd be arrested. Without speaking, we moved on. People crowded the many docks that reached out into the water. Regardless of whether it was sparkling or had trash floating in it, 
They bought snacks from totally unfamiliar vendors, like people always did, wearing clothing that made Agatha look conservative. Their fronds were thin and numerous like Agatha's, but no one seemed to notice the pink frond-headed stranger. Everyone was unique. This one of the better versions? I asked. Agatha just smiled. We walked up and down blocks. They shifted and changed. The people, the buildings. From old brick and stone with old-timers debating outside on stoops, to shining chrome and glass restaurants the size of an apartment. At one point, a Thai restaurant shared a wall with a tiny Poroshki place. No two steps felt like the last. And I had to ask if we were still hopping. Nope, that's just Brooklyn, Agatha said. We were passing a pair of women in animal print, screaming obscenities about a neighbor, when I stopped dead in my tracks. You have to try it. It's delicious. I knew that cheery thought pattern. It was Beazel. I grinned and looked at Agatha, who winked and shooed me. Without another word out loud, I took off, cutting through back and front yards, finding myself outside a version of Agatha's double-sided home that was intact and downright adorable. It oozed warmth and silliness, but more importantly, it had my friends lounging on the front steps. They were bandaged and bruised, but they were alive. They saw me as I burst into the street narrowly dodging a car that honked for the rest of the block. Emotion gushed into my parched mind. Relief, happiness, and every flavor of overwhelmed. We embraced as a group, touching foreheads and fronds and laughing until our stomachs hurt. In seconds, we all knew what each of us had been through. And as a group, looked at the hoppers attached to our wrists. You can't get your home back, Agatha said as we all met her eyes. But you never really lose what it felt like to you. You take that seed and you plant it wherever you can. But first, we have to make it safe, Fakor said out loud for the psychically challenged. And then we start over, maybe even on our old dimension, Yaida agreed. Ooh, or one of those versions with sparkling rocks everywhere, Beazel giggled. I smiled. This place still didn't resonate right, but... Maybe somewhere could, in time. But this is your ideal version, huh, Agatha? Oh, yes, she answered as she led us into our new, temporary home. This one still has rent control. Liam Burke is an independent author with a passion for juxtaposing biting humor along with the sharp teeth of horror, razor code of cyberpunk, and back-alley deals of urban fantasy. When not crafting worlds, he's playing in someone else's via tabletop, LARP, or digital RPGs. He is a proud father and husband, and is still confused how he got so lucky in that regard. Isn't that nice? I like a happy ending. So do I. And that's what I wanted to tell you about. See, our trip to the pork store wasn't in vain. I got this. And that is the biggest tin can I've ever seen. I guess that is kind of impressive. And we're going to open it right here on the air, like those unboxing videos on YouTube. Only without the distracting visuals. Precisely. It's my newest idea for bringing in listeners. The unboxing audio. The untinning audio. Yeah, where we bring the content to life through the power of language. It'll be a regular feature called Yes We Can. 
you know what? You're right. This is a podcast celebrating words, like these words right here on the can, which I'm afraid I can't read. The label is printed with some kind of alien script. I can hardly bear to gaze upon its hideous angles. Pretty sure it's just Cyrillic. Nah, it's way too eldritch. Folks at home, what's inside the can is... a slightly smaller can? The label on this one has no words, just whimsical images of frolicking pigs. Alien creatures that superficially resemble pigs, smiling as they muse on the space crimes they'll unleash on humanity. No, just pigs, see? I'm not convinced. There's another can in that one. This might take uh, longer than I thought. I'm telling you, Allie, no human being would put 11 million cans inside each other like this. We are dealing with a bona fide alien artifact, like that face on Mars. Folks, this is hour three of Yes We Can, and Veronica has just revealed a can the size of my pinky fingernail. This has seriously got to be the last one. It's legit a centimeter high. If they get any smaller, I can't open them, even with the nail clippers. So far, we've revealed tin cans, steel cans. Cans that are clearly the product of alien technology. Oh, they were not. And now, we're down to the very last can, we think. Give me a drum roll. And it's... it's... a single bacon bit. Seriously? After three hours? What the... 74 cans and it's a bacon bit? It's not even some kind of spooky supernatural bacon bit. Well, you did get it from a pork store. This is bogus. And now the studio's full of these stupid cans. I'm not cleaning them up. This was your segment. (sighs) Oh, come on. Cheer up. I'll tell you what. A big deal podcast like us ought to have an intern to do some of the grunt work, don't you think? An intern, huh? Yeah, someone to get us coffee and clean up this dump, recycle all these cans. We deserve it. Yeah, great idea. I'm on it. Hold Time Violations by John Chu Narrated by Tatiana Gray Attention passengers, the next red line train to Alewife is now approaching. Echoes off the walls. Not only has the red line train to Alewife arrived, but its passengers have already flooded the station. A torrent rushing up the escalators, through the turnstiles, then down the concourse to spill out the doors to Cambridge. The flood coming as the PA system squawks catches Ellie off guard. It's rush hour. When a train arrives on one side of the platform, the one on the other side leaves seconds later. She sprints, a veritable salmon racing against the current of bodies. Her pack sloshes between her shoulder blades, a sloppy fin batting the waves of people that surround her. No one has tried to kill her yet today. Occasionally, skunkworks isolationists try. Also, her sister Chris arranges something pretty much every day to keep her sharp. Maybe the mistimed announcement is part of the attempt. She'll be caught in the rip current of bodies, a wave will overwhelm her, and the knives of a shark hiding in the swell will 
tear her to pieces. Compared to the attempt with the Mylar balloons, Jar of Marmite, and the U.S. men's Greco-Roman wrestling team, an ill-timed flood at Alewife Station is downright practical and likely. None of that happens, though. The crowd flows around her as she plunges down the stairs toward the platform. The car doors shut just as she reaches them, while the PA system blasts. Attention passengers, the next red line train to Alewife is now arriving. The train clatters away. The train, supposedly now arriving, sits already emptied on the opposite side of the platform. It beeps as its doors slide shut. Some guy wearing shorts that stretch across his thighs, no shirt, and more self-possession than Ellie thought possible, hovers in front of one of the doors. Someone else sits on a bench, staring at her e-reader. A thin woman reaches for Ellie like someone drowning, reaching for a buoy. Her luggage crashes to the floor. She asks in rapid Mandarin whether Ellie knows how to get to the best Western. Her oboe-like voice skips through her words. Ellie blinks. She doesn't really speak Mandarin, at least not to anyone she doesn't know. The best Western is just a short walk away. With luggage, though, the woman will want a taxi, but there's almost always one dropping someone off right outside the station. All the woman needs to do is go up the escalator and cross the concourse. The response Ellie stitches together doesn't draw laughs. In fact, the woman thanks her. Ellie decides she is not today's assassin. The woman doesn't turn to the escalator. Instead, she freezes for a moment, then glares at Ellie. If you'd quit your job after Mom's diagnosis like I'd asked, you could move to D.C. The woman says in fluent English, her voice now husky, you wouldn't have to worry about missing the Amtrak. The woman looks nothing like Chris, but she now sounds exactly like her. A childhood in Taipei clashed with an adolescence in Buffalo to give Chris an accent that is incongruously Brooklyn. People randomly start sounding like her sister all the time. Some people text. Her sister waylays convenient strangers. The frequency never makes it less disconcerting. Do we have to have this discussion right now? Ellie furrows her brow. If I don't get to South Station in time, the next Amtrak is tonight. I'll be there before the afternoon. The woman only comes up to Ellie's neck. She glares down at Ellie anyway. Too late. The woman folds her arms across her chest. If I have to stay at home to watch over Mom, you have to go to the Skunk Works and repair the physics of this universe. What's the hurry? Everyone's wrong about why International Prototype Kilogram is losing mass relative to its official copies. We'd see divergences between copies, even if the kilogram were defined by something more fundamental than a cylinder of platinum alloy. The notion of the kilogram itself has become unstable. Ellie frowned. Fundamental physical constants are changing. Yes. Well, now the good news. There's good news? Is we found some hold time violations in the skunk works, probably caused by some leaking valves. They must be why the kilogram's unstable. Fix them, and I promise I won't judge you when you don't get here until tomorrow afternoon. First time for everything, sis. By first time, Ellie isn't sure if Chris is talking about being sent to repair the skunk works or not judging her for being late. Probably the former. Nothing in the Matryoshka doll that is the set of universes can prevent Chris from judging her. Ellie would ask, but Chris has already gone. The woman turns around as though she hasn't said a thing. She goes to the escalator, trundling her luggage behind her. At least someone gets to go where she wants to. 
Ellie doesn't, because Mom lies comatose on a bed in Chris's den. Mom needs constant attention from Chris, the way dolphins need tax advice. However, taking care of your parents is a filial obligation, and no one is more Chinese than someone who no longer lives in the motherland. Even though Chris wants Ellie in the same house as Mom, she doesn't actually let Ellie do anything for Mom. Chris would rather do it herself. Ellie visits every weekend anyway. She only needs one reason. Once in a while, Mom shifts in bed. She yawns, her eyes open a crack, and for a moment, she stares right at Ellie. She's about to wake up from her long nap, or so it seems for that moment. Then her eyes close again and she slumps back into bed. She probably never moved in the first place. Still, this seems like much more than random firing of neurons in a brain about to die. Ellie, even though she knows better, can't help thinking that the next time might be the time. The train beeps. Its doors slide open. Passengers stream onto the train. Ellie shakes her head clear, then joins them. The skunk works that generates a universe lives within the surrounding universe. There are infinite number of skunk works and universes. Everyone else is headed toward Davis Square. Ellie, on the other hand, is headed to the universe that surrounds this one. The air in the skunk works feels spackled onto her skin. It burns into her lungs like hot fudge, slow and slick. Its aftertaste at once sickly, sweet, bitter, and sour. It takes effort to force back out. The skunk works looks like the masterpiece of some mad plumber who failed perspectives class in art school. The labyrinth of pipes that surrounds her makes her dizzy at first. Broad swaths of transparent mesh stretch between pipes and she bobbles until she gets her bearings. Fat pipes pass overhead. They form a de facto canopy hiding the skunk works, which stretches for miles above her. In actuality, it stretches for miles in all directions. Fixes have piled on top of so-called improvements, have piled on top of emergency repairs, forever. Rust covers the gates and reservoirs at the intersection of pipes. Most pipes block each other's way and have to zigzag around each other. No pipes are unscarred from dead welds of stubs where pipes used to join together. Data pulses through the pipes in all directions. The pipes ripple, but stabilize in time for clacking of valves and the burbling of reservoirs. Probably because she already knows which ones they are, the pipes that violate the hold time requirement look out of sync, even to the naked eye. Pipes are supposed to be stable a little before reservoir valves clack, until a little after. The pipes that violate the hold time requirement start to ripple again too soon, corrupting the reservoirs they feed. Someone stands on a mesh below her. Daniel. He's a verifier, not an isolationist. None of the latter have found her yet. Ellie lets go of the breath she didn't realize she was holding. Those who know about the skunk works fall into four factions. Isolationists believe... Whatever universe a skunk works generates is correct, even as it inevitably decays. Any change introduces error rather than removes it. 
architects design the configuration of gates and pipes that generate the next universe in. Builders, like Ellie and Chris, install those gates and pipes, translating the architect's designs into reality. Verifiers, like Daniel, check whether architects have designed the right thing and whether they have designed the thing right. They understand the skunk works better than anyone. One of them is almost always the first to show up when the skunk works has gone wrong. Even looking down from above, no one can mistake Daniel. His long legs are too short for his torso, and his shoulders are too wide. He manages to be both lithe and stocky at the same time, as though he were the runt of a family of impossibly elegant giants. A black t-shirt is draped over his left shoulder. The pipes beyond his gaze blur, as though a giant thumb has smeared a broad swath of petroleum jelly on the air. He holds his hand out. The blurred air twists and swirls into a ball on his palm. It coalesces into an egg tart. Its bright yellow custard sits inside a pale blonde serrated crust. The perfume of eggs and sugar hangs in the thick air. He studies the egg tart from all angles. His neck cranes and his hand twists. Crumbs fall when he picks up the tart to look at the crust's bottom. He brings it to his nose to sniff. The custard jiggles slightly when he shakes the tart. He frowns. Ellie bounces from mesh to mesh, swinging around pipes and ducking under reservoirs. She lands next to Daniel. This mesh, already taut from his weight, barely registers her. Cousin, your first time solo. Daniel's voice is never the thunder she expects from an elegant giant. He speaks with the rustle of leaves and the rush of water as it smooths the rocks. Congrats. Chris mentioned hold time violations. Probably Valve's gone faulty. Should be an easy fix. Otherwise, she wouldn't have sent me instead of coming herself. Ellie's arms wave in slow motion semaphore as she steadies herself. Your egg tart shows a mismatch between how the skunk works that was built functions and how the skunk works that was designed functions, right? Yeah, no point in calling an architect. The design itself is fine. The problem is in the implementation. It's all yours. Don't need to remind you that we have to be out of here before the isolationists find us, right? She sets down her backpack, then walks around Daniel to a knot of intertwined pipes. Reservoir valves clack, and the pipes they feed ripple too soon. Data races through those pipes, corrupting the reservoir they feed in turn. All of the valves, however, are fine. Their actuators swing smoothly. Their seals fit perfectly against the pipes and reservoirs. Nothing leaks. The skunkworks predate humanity, and no human had ever made any changes to this section. Any actual mismatch in construction should have been found eons ago. Still, she checks, hoping that's what the problem is. The alternatives are all far worse. A plane of air folds into an origami black forest cuckoo clock. The transparent crystalline structure floats before her eyes. Its pendulum swings back and forth, and the skunkworks fills with the sting of an offstage chorus whenever the pendulum stops at the peak of its arc. Light diffracts through leaves that line its side. Color sprays across the pipes and Daniel. The egg tart is still in his outstretched hand, and he looks far sillier than Ellie would have thought possible given his I'm-deadly-if-you-come-within-five-paces body. The clock 
unfolds into a crinkled plane. Its creases delimit facets that refract pipes behind them into something syncretic cubist. She grabs the newly retrieved blueprint. Its hard edges dig into her palm. She warps it, at first into a dome, then into a sphere that seals her in. Daniel splinters into Man with an Egg Tart, a Brock that Brock never painted. He's all shards of black, gray, and brown flecked with grains of yellow. This piece of the skunk works, however, resolves into something that no longer looks like an obscene display of syncretic cubism. The multiple perspectives merge into one. Pipes straighten and meet at right angles. She spins along three axes inside the sphere. Her hands and feet work their way up, down, and around the hard, cold sphere for support. Dense knots explode, laying bare their pipes and gates. The labyrinth is now a regular matrix. Pulses of data bulge from one pipe to another as they sweep in waves from one side of the matrix to the other. The waves propagate faster than she expects. Just in front of her, waves crash into each other. That's bad. If the actual arrangement of pipes, gates, and reservoirs didn't match what they meant to build, though, it wouldn't look like a matrix through the sphere. The skunk works matches the blueprint in construction. They don't match the blueprint in function, though. Fuck me. She slams a foot against the sphere. It shatters with a chord from the offstage chorus. The valves are fine. The skunk works is fine. She falls face up onto the mesh and thinks horrible things about Chris. Her backpack bounces above her, then lands on her stomach. Daniel looms over her, his hands behind his back. He smells like soy and ginger. An amused expression sits on his face. Egg tart? He crouches, then places the pastry on the backpack. I don't need to study the equivalency report. She pushes herself up by her elbows. I trust your analysis. <sighs> I meant to eat. It's a functional mismatch, but still edible. He nudges the backpack toward her head. You haven't had dinner yet, right? You'll feel better with something in your stomach. Personally, I think that's just a story my boyfriend tells me, but eh, maybe eating really does clear the mind. She sits up. The backpack and egg tart slide into her lap. Don't you want your mind cleared? Nah, I don't believe in emotions. A grin lights his face. I had a protein shake and a banana before I showed up. I already know what's wrong. She takes a bite of the egg tart. It tastes sweet, sour, and gamey. Turkey and cranberries? Hey, I said the report was a mismatch. I do what I can. Daniel rolls his eyes. So, what's wrong, cuz? This universe, she finishes the egg tart. It's not bad if you know what's coming. It's like someone secretly added lots of helium to the air and now we all squeak. The skunk works wasn't designed for pipes this slick. The properties of this universe can't have changed much. Most of the skunk works still works right, but a few paths are now too fast. Which is why we're seeing functional failures, even though what was built matches what was designed, then functionally verified. Daniel nods. What's next? Check whether the skunk works one universe out is working properly, so I know where to make the fix. It's fine. 
he sets a plate made of compressed deep-fried rice from behind him onto her backpack. Pieces of pan-fried fish coated in brown glaze sit on the plate. That's why he smelled of soy and ginger. I popped out to check while you were assessing equivalency here. So they changed the laws of their universe? Seriously? This goes against everything Mom has taught her. If you already knew that, why bother asking me what's wrong? I didn't. Speculative generation. He smiles. You were busy and there was no reason not to check before you asked. Sooner we get out of here, the less likely we'll have to deal with any isolationists. I saved us some time. Ellie breaks off a shard from the plate to test the fish. The glazed fish's crispy skin cracks against the deep-fried rice. She sniffs at this equivalency report. Then again, the egg tart smelled normal, too. Is this going to taste icky sweet like Bob Alphan or something? Now Daniel just looks annoyed. His brow furrows and his hands rest on his hips. No, it's going to taste like a deconstructed garlic fried rice paired with a soy and ginger glazed tilapia. The skunk works one universe out is fine. Eat. She lances a piece of fish and tries it. The tilapia is mild. Its triumph is that it doesn't sit like cotton in her mouth. The glaze is lovely. Garlic, shallots, and a little brown sugar round out the soy and ginger. Daniel simply shakes his head when she offers to share. She hasn't had dinner yet, and she doesn't have time, so it all disappears quickly. The glaze never cloys, even when it coats her mouth. The plate made of rice clears the glaze away in any case. Show off. Ellie smiles before letting sparks flit from finger to finger on her left hand. The air becomes gauze that scatters the pipes, valves, reservoirs, even Daniel, into mathematical points that then recombine. The machinery that generates the universe shimmers. Unlike Daniel, Ellie doesn't generate food. Instead, when the gauze coalesces, it becomes cool, metallic, and malleable. Not coincidentally the stuff that thickens into pieces of the skunk works. Her right hand extrudes a gate out of the gauze. In time with the clacking of the valves, her left hand strikes the pipe in front of her twice. Sparks fly. The pipe splits. Clean parallel scars separate a ring from the pipe on either side. She installs the gate in place of the ring, her left hand sparking again to fuse the gate into place. One by one, she inserts extra gates to slow the paths that have become too fast. Click, insert. Clack, insert. She can only repair the skunkworks in the moment when the pipes are settled. The skunkworks never halts. The one that lives in the innermost universe generates the outermost universe, whatever innermost and outermost mean when the universes are arranged in a loop. Stopping one skunkworks stops all of them. How you start them back up again is something she hopes she never has to figure out. She dismisses the gauze, and the skunk works sharpen. The pipes grow and shrink in sync with the clacking of the valves. Data no longer skids through paths, causing pipes to expand or contract when they should be still. Okay, Daniel, show me where to go. We need to flush out speculative state before it's committed and we're stuck with the results of a faulty skunk works. Of course, they're already stuck. Some mistakes of a faulty skunkworks have already been committed, but there's no point in letting those errors compound. The universe should be generated correctly from as early as possible. 
Daniel shifts his t-shirt across his back and ties it around his neck. It might look like a cape, except it's way too short. He appraises her, his face pensive. Anyone else might just declare it close enough and leave before isolationists find them. You really are Aunt Vera's child, aren't you? Ellie rolls her eyes. Mom's reputation precedes her. Considering how long you lived with us, you might as well be too. Daniel looks annoyed again. No, I mean her attitude about the skunk works and the generated universe. Never mind. You have to see it yourself. Come on, follow me. He leads to a thick pipeway overhead. From there, he swings to a swath of mesh, bounces, and off he goes. Hold up, you big lunk. You have at least half a foot of wingspan on me. Ellie sighs too loudly, then follows him. Whether or not it's actually hotter, the skunkworks interior is definitely more humid. Rust covers every pipe. Sometimes it flakes off as the pipes grow and shrink. The farther in Ellie and Daniel go, the faster the skunkworks expand and contract, until it's as though the skunkworks is breathing. The transparent mesh that spans pipes goes taut and slack. A faint hiss precedes the near-unison clack of reservoir valves. Daniel points out which valves she needs to wedge open, and for how long. That will cause the skunkworks to flush out its speculative state, and then regenerate the universe anew from what has already been committed. By now, that's not error-free. She's already missed the train to South Station, but nothing left to do about that. He looks up for a moment, nods, then leaps for a pipe above him. Now that you've actually made changes to the skunkworks, you know the isolationists will really be after you. Daniel swings around the pipe, a one-armed giant. I guess I should have said something earlier. Isolationists don't deal well with anyone trying to repair the skunkworks. Usually they've shown up by now. Have I ever told you that when I was a kid, Chris used to attack me in my sleep to see whether I'd wake up in time? Ellie climbs onto a pipe and stops for a moment to get her bearings. She didn't use real knives back then, of course. I've always been the black sheep. Daniel releases the pipe, flips through the air in a layout position, then bounces off the mesh towards another pipe. I'll verify anything that's well-specified and backward compatible, not just bug fixes. The isolationists must really hate you. She projects where Daniel is about to land and jumps after him. It's the pointlessly dangerous life, then. Isn't it better in the long run if we just implement the correct physics correctly? Hey, I have my standards. Change the law of physics? No. Discover new laws or a more general formulation of what we already know? Why not? This time it's Daniel who stops. He's rock steady as the pipe he landed on swells and contracts. Look, there will always be architects with clever ideas of how to generate the universe more efficiently so that it can be more detailed or more expansive. There will always be builders who enable them, if nothing else, because they have cool ideas themselves for new valves or better way to connect pipes. Someone has to make sure they don't destroy the universe. All of the universe is actually in the process, so that, on occasion, someone can tell them no and they'll listen. Of course, even then, there's still the occasional unauthorized change. Ellie finally catches up to Daniel. Her lungs burn. Daniel's probably due, too. His breath is calm, but metronomically steady. 
That's a nice speech, but I'm my mom's child, remember? How much convincing can I possibly need to remove something that generates incorrect physics? Daniel glares. His expression screams, that's fucking flippant. Daniel, though, doesn't scream. He's so soft-spoken, Ellie isn't sure he can. In any case, the angrier he gets, the quieter he becomes. Cuz, I've known you since before you could walk. To her relief, his voice isn't too much softer than his normal quiet. Just wanted to be sure you stood where I thought before I showed you this. His gaze shifts to the skunk works. He points overhead. The tangle of pipes looks like any other in the skunk works. It expands and contracts, however, to a beat slightly skewed from the surrounding pipes. Rather than clack, its reservoir valves hiss when they shut. Otherwise, the skew would be obvious to anyone listening. The miniature skunkworks within the skunkworks is tied directly into the pipes that commit state, that choose from the speculative generation and render it permanent as the basis for further speculative generation. What does it do? You need to see yourself before I tell you. Daniel faces his palms toward her. Won't make sense otherwise. The plane of air above her doesn't fold into anything. Blueprints don't exist for the mechanism Daniel pointed out. Not even logs of who built them. Ellie frowns. Blueprints always exist. Otherwise, what would the architect work on? What did the verifier simulate? What did the builder work off of? She jumps, catching the mechanism's lowest pipes, then flips herself inside. Shadows fall across shadows. The chiaroscuro drains everything of depth. She contorts from pipe to pipe, tracing out paths to build a blueprint in her head. Cool, smooth pipes breathe in her grasp. Rust doesn't sand her palms. The air feels thick, but doesn't smell metallic. Nothing here can be more than a year or two old. But pipes twist and jag around each other. Builders have inserted subtle fix after subtle fix after subtle fix. Those who designed, built, then kept tinkering with this tracked mom's treatment history. A set of pipes tweak electron orbitals, changing the shapes of chemical compounds, specifically those pumped into mom, to make them more effective against mom's tumors, Ellie guesses. Unfortunately, a skunkworks generates an entire universe. Physical laws don't apply only to three specific chemical compounds. This mechanism changes the universe she lives in so much more than they intended. It's like making mashed potatoes when all you have is dynamite. They wanted mashed potatoes so much, they blew the potatoes up. The newest bits try to pull a similar electron orbital trick, but on the chemicals inside Mom's brain. Ellie crawls through those paths three times before she can convince herself she's right. This is why, every once in a while, Mom seems to wake up. Days seem to pass before she can breathe again. The mechanism will heal Mom eventually. Well, it needs some more tinkering first, and... She has some ideas. It also, bizarrely, may cause a species of migratory bird to go extinct and any of a number of other things that are also not supposed to happen. 
she has no idea how to avoid any of that. This mechanism wasn't designed to be subtle. It was designed to save mom's life. She doesn't have the time to work out everything else it will also do. The isolationists will find her and Daniel soon. This causes a lot of collateral damage. Ellie hangs by the mechanism's lowest pipes and drops onto the pipe Daniel's standing on. No wonder you want me to get rid of it. My feelings about it are complicated. His voice blends into the hiss and Ellie strains to separate it out. Aunt Vera took me in when no one else would. Of course. She fixes her gaze hard at Daniel. Then why even show me this? The thud of bodies, undoubtedly isolationists hitting mesh, the creak of pipes buckling and unbuckling surrounds them. Daniel spins around, his gaze pinpointing isolationists swinging through the skunkworks. Well, it's about time they showed up. His voice has reverted to merely quiet. Look, everyone loves Aunt Vera. Constructing this pretty much violates everything anyone who can access the skunkworks stands for. But countless architects, verifiers, and builders all worked on it, and no one has removed it. Chris sent you in part because she doesn't want to face the choice, and who can blame her? So here you are. I'll buy you time to do whatever you decide to do. And whatever you decide, we won't speak of this again. Do you need any help with them? You're joking, right? Daniel puffs himself up. His chest expands, his back spreads, and scarily, he actually looks even bigger than normal. I can drown them in boiling oil whenever I want. Because you have arc welders for hands. I'm not worried about you. Just buying you enough time for you to do your thing before more of them show up. You really get off on this whole service and protection thing, don't you? Hey, don't judge me. He actually looks a little wounded. At least I'm taking care of the skunk works, even if it's for the wrong reason. Plant you now, dig you later, cuz. Daniel bounds away. The smile on his face is scarier than any weapon. All Ellie can think of is Mom lying in bed. Mom's head lurches up, staring at Ellie in a simulacrum of life that one day may be the real thing. Hope flares through Ellie, leaving her both empty and wishing it would flare again. Mom needs her own universe in order to heal without trashing the one Ellie lives in. Of course, a new universe is the result of too many people over too much time to create a skunkworks that takes up too much space. That's why they clutched this mechanism instead. It will work eventually, even if it also causes birds to migrate at the wrong times to the wrong places, even if it has other countless side effects that will take lifetimes to map out. It's built to be dismantled. The pipes that commit state are the only bits of the skunkworks it is connected to. It can be removed at any time. She can wait. She can let this universe, too haphazard to understand, much less document, be the new normal until mom is cured. The tides will be wrong and the foundations of physics may crack, but mom will live. Valves clack and pipes shrink and swell in time. From end to end, they jog and twist around each other at wild angles. Data travels through pipes that are too long and too hard to trace. No builder would route them this way except to work around pipes already there. 
all the other possibilities being even longer or harder to trace or functionally wrong. Once, when Mom was still overseeing Ellie's work, Ellie had found a truly elegant fix. Just a few short pipes connected at right angles installed in an easily accessible place. Piece of cake! They'd be done in no time. She rushed to show Mom, who slowly shook her head, then pointed out the one case in billions where data would not reach the reservoir before its valve closed. Instead, as isolationists bore down on them, Mom and Ellie threaded pipes through the existing tangle. The fix was time-consuming and ugly. Isolationists nearly caught them. But the fix was also provably correct. Ellie looks at the valves she needs to hold open to flush out speculative state and the mechanism she might dismantle. She knows what she has to do. Attention passengers, the next red line train to Alewife is now arriving. Echoes off the walls. Ellie sprints and meets the oncoming torrent at the ticket gate. Even though the announcements are properly timed, she's going to miss the train again. This will be the last time she makes the trip to see Mom. And she wishes it weren't. John Chu is a microprocessor architect by day and a writer, translator, and podcast narrator by night. His story, The Water That Falls on You From Nowhere, won the 2014 Hugo Award for Best Short Story. Tatiana Gray is a critically acclaimed actress of stage, screen, and the audio booth. She has been nominated for dozens of fancy awards, but hasn't won a single damned thing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. See more about Tatiana at www.tatianagray.com. The Kaleidocast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidocast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidocast production team was Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer. Cameron Roberson, executive producer. Sandra Fink, managing producer. Christopher Lazarick. Managing Editor and Production Manager. Marcus Zong, Story Runner. Anton Borst, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Host. Carlos Luis Delgado, Editor and Sound Engineer. Jason A. Smith, Editor, Sound Engineer, Actor. Sam Schreiber, Senior Producer, Senior Editor, Sound Engineer. Holden Lee, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer. Jason Stack, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Technical Officer. Marcy Arlen. Co-founder, associate producer, voice actor, director. Randy Dawn, editor, sound engineer, actor. Eric Rosenfield, chief technical officer. S.J. Penderat, associate editor and producer. I am McGuire, associate editor and producer. Sadie Kleinman, producer. Devansha Segel, associate editor, producer, actor. Katherine Erickson, Associate Editor. And a special thanks to Amachai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell 
sell or change it, and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers, whose support has meant the world to us. A special thank you to the Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. Sarah E. Hanum, Jackie Fink, and Joanna Arbiza. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc.